You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone. So, we had a lot more material with Alex than we used first round. Alex talks about meta rules, which particularly fascinates me, because the idea is how do you tell between two equally valid market hypotheses? How do you know when you should change your mind? And the meta rules concept is exactly about that. And we also talk about FX markets and Alex's views on equity markets here and now. And I think those are pretty important. So, for all of those who want to dive a little deeper, this is for you. You know, I'm really pleased you raised this question of meta rules. You've mentioned them before in an interview I saw you give uh, somebody who slips to mind, but I was very struck when you did it. And I thought to myself, it'd be really cool to talk to this guy because I use the Whitney Houston song, um, How Will I Know if, If He Really Loves Me? You're often in a situation where you're confronted with two perfectly reasonable hypotheses with logic, which is compelling in both cases, how can you decide between these two hypotheses? What will give you an uh, an earlier uh, decision node to switch directions? In this particular case, it's not the Whitney Houston question about how will I know if he really loves me. It's a question of how will I know if I'm pivoting to this deflationary environment and how can I make that decision before other people make it? Tell us about other meta rules or this meta rule, or this meta question. Well, well, first of all, I did like, yeah, the example you gave is very apt because indeed uh, I actually like staying with how do I know that he really loves me? Because again, suppose you're an alien, you come to earth and you talk to, to economy, to people arguing and one person says, there's going to be inflation. The other person says there's going to be deflation. And both of them are wearing glasses or one of them is wearing glasses, right? How do you know which of those talking hats is making more sense? What is the meta reason? See, like you mentioned math before, for example, there's arguing somebody about math and the person was an artist or, uh, I don't know, pick a profession, right? A doctor. You would say, well, they're arguing about math. This guy's a mathematician. This guy's a doctor. Probably the mathematician is more likely to be right. And if we started to argue about some health issue, you would probably say like, well, the person probably the doctor is more likely to be right. It's all probability, but you would say, if you cut into the brain, but in the case of economics, in the case of economics, this is not so clear. <laughs> uh, so you have to see, like, what is your meta advantage? What I try then to do, I try to talk to other smart people. So you mentioned your colleague Julian, and I, I was at the Real event, Vision event with him a few months ago. I think it was in April. We were in San Diego, and we had a lot of conversations. And a lot of people there, like, at first, we came like with very different thesis and it seemed like we disagreed and he had some arguments that seemed to be very different by the way he was kind of correct about the development of the last few months right mm-hmm. in a, in terms of at least he he was expecting high inflation prints this year and they're continuing to be high i didn't know and whatever uh i think i was more maybe i don't remember i think he was fairly bearish on stock market too but he was conditionally bearish well anyway that's not the point who was more right about what I think he was more right. I will concede that, right? In terms of short-term market predictions. But we were like, so what do we agree with? But I think both of us thought that eventually whatever the inflation would be, 
eventually things will roll over and it will be deflationary shock. I think a lot of traders, and what I find is that my meta advantage is the way I trade, I'm willing to see past, like a lot of traders will say, oh, but right now there is inflation and next three months bond market will continue going down. While I say, I don't know what it's going to do next three months, what I know is what it's going to do two years from now. And, well, Julian and I talked about this. We're like, well, we not necessarily know the time horizons, and they're not the same. But when we go out to 2005, we we'll pretty much agree on where the situation is going to be. We might disagree on where it might be in 2023. Yeah. But once we get to, by 2025, we agree. And this is what I call a shield against uncertainty. Let's just get together, all the smart people, and see if, through those threads of disagreements to see what it is that is actually less controversial. Can we find some nodes of agreement? And this is where I try to place my bets. This is where I try to put my money. Honestly, I'm not always very faithful about this. Sometimes I get too swayed into my speculative view. You're a trader. It's very hard not to trade your view. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's what you do. Like it's very hard to trade, count, to kind of not reload up and focus on what exactly corresponds to your view. But what my strategic system I've been trying to emphasize, look at those junctures of high certainty. Don't bet on what the rates are going to be. If I try to bet what Fed funds are going to be like in July 2022, three months in advance, I probably wouldn't have done well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's bet on where the rates will be in 2025 or 2024 maybe. Even though I, my view is that they're going to go to zero much sooner than that, probably by mid-2023, but I could be wrong. So why not bet on 2024 when they will suddenly get there, right? That's what that, that's the way I try to think about this. So in these all the disagreements, I think you can find an agreement. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. So I'll give you another example of a meta rule because I I think, you know, there's this idea of you can teach a, give a man a fish or teach him to fish and teaching to fish is considered to be better. I'm very lazy, so I prefer the fish. (laughs) There you go. Um, So a meta rule I picked up. So I've done a lot of EM debt trading. Right in the past, and there was a point where I was sitting at home trading EM debt for my own personal account, and I spent a long time on this uh, bulletin board that was called the Color of the Money back in 2000, I think it was, uh, with, with the guy Switzer Deutsch guys, rich Switzer Deutsches, who were investing in emerging market bonds. And most of these guys were kind of silly. They referred to Argentina as a country of thieves. I can see where they got that from, but it's not very polite. But they did one guy who called himself Savonarola, which I think is a clue that he was a smarter than average guy, um, made a point that never lost left me. You know, defaulted or restructured debt, it still accrues PDI. So in any restructuring, you're meant to get your past due interest as well with the deal. So he made the point, it's really hard to go wrong when you're receiving 2000 over LIBOR. And this may seem to be a banal point, right? <laughs> but it turns out that if you're receiving 2000 over LIBOR, even when they restructure away 20, 30, 40% of the debt because it's unsustainable. You're still getting paid quite a lot of money to own that, and it's rolling up, not continuously compound, but compounding away. 
It's amazingly hard to lose money when you've got 2,000 over LIBOR working on your side. And I think this is generally, what's, what's a perfect trade? Perfect trade is convex, good entry point, his, his, historically attractive uh, entry point, and positive carry, and has a macro argument for why it should work. You very seldom see the perfect trade, but when you do, there's always some reason why you shouldn't do it. And the argument I'd make is, actually, you should do it because you ain't going to find a better trade. If you don't do this, what will you do? I, I think it's one of those one of those things with emerging market debt is what I say, like there is a point at which location overwhelms the story. Because the story, for example, everything is bad in Argentina, right? This is your story. Yeah. Everything is going south. But, oh, this debt, like you point all those factors. And, but at some point, the debt still becomes a buy. Yeah. Same goes for euro. Some, some, something goes for bonds. Something goes for stock market. This is where I find often opportunities come up when people get too much uh, caught up in momentum and story, but location is already such that all the story is already priced in. And then, it's, it, then it, the trade becomes good. And a lot of people wait for momentum to change, and that's a valid approach. And the end, there is an approach more like a deep value approach to see when the location is just so good that you cannot go wrong on the long horizon. And that is has kind of a bad rap because people think of it as deep value. But as you mentioned, like very often, like the carry factors or other factors make trades just really indestructible. Yeah, often it's a convexity of the position. Um, right now, I'm looking at some weird bonds that nobody like. If if the government gave health recommendations, the recommendation would be never buy these bonds. And uh, but I'm looking at the thing and I'm thinking about it. If they paid exactly what they're scheduled, they're supposed to pay. This bond would give me a cash flow of per hundred per hundred thousand dollars I invest. It would give me a million dollars over its lifetime, right? And I look at this thing and I think, okay, how much are they really going to pay me? And they're not going to pay me the full million dollars, but they're definitely going to pay me more than one tenth of it. So then the question is, you know, is there a good reason other than that not to do? How about in FX? Is there cheap convexity in FX? Is that where the gamma is cheap? Uh, it's not super cheap, but I mean, it's again, it depends on your view. I don't have very heavy FX bets right now. I have some, but they're not very heavy. Like I'm nowhere I say like, this is the great value. I think the vol is definitely not cheap. I think reversal of yen trade could be an interesting thing to look at right now. Like mm -hmm. yen trade is extremely weak and then it's sharply reversed over the last few days. And those yen counter trades being long yen becomes kind of interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, the relative the inflation differential is biased in your favor. Uh, putting that trade on, it's it's much cheaper than the ends. Yen is much cheaper than it looks. I haven't been to Japan in ages. Have you just come back from Japan? Have you been? No, recently? I was in Europe. I was in Europe. Okay. In Japan. I was going to ask because last time I went to Japan, I was shocked by how cheap it was. And I'm thinking this place. Wow, on PPP basis, this is where you should get your lunch. Right. Yeah, well, you know, London looks very cheap these days, too, with a 120 conversion rate. I was like, wow, eating in London like, all of a sudden is so much cheaper. Like, doing, like, buying groceries or eating in London felt very cheap to me. Yeah, I think for restaurants and, as like, well. Very few Londoners would, like, feel that way right now. <laughs> like, it seems like almost like a blasphemy to say that London is cheap. But honestly, like, real estate is still expensive. And what you pay for staying anyway is expensive. But everything else felt very cheap. American right now with exchange rates. 
Yeah, it, it's true. It's it, it's the Brits don't think of parity or anything near parity as making any sense. Yeah. Um. It it doesn't. It doesn't. You can eat eat very well in London, and it will be cheap if compared to if you live in New York or San. I imagine San Francisco. God knows how expensive San Francisco is to eat in. It's pretty expensive around here. So like, it's just like you cannot be like they're not going to let you out of a grocery store if you didn't spend hundred dollars here, right? Like it's just impossible. Like, oh, I see. Go, like, okay. Yeah. You walk out. You walk out spending hundred dollars, and then in. Uh, London, you can like go buy a few things. I'm like, oh, I spent twenty pounds. <laughs> no, no, London groceries are way cheaper than say New York groceries. Uh, it makes so much more sense to cook in London than it does to cook in New York. It just does not make sense. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know San Francisco well enough to comment. Something just occurred to me. I'm a bit dim and slow, so uh, it just occurred to me that I don't really have a clear sense of where you stand on equities. Like the recessionary environment you're kind of talking about. That's not normally a bullish environment for equities. Uh, well, one of the problems I'm having, and actually one of the reasons why I had difficulties last year, this year, is because generally I never short equities, and the right trade would have been to be short equities. Right. I, I kind of don't like being short equities because I usually either flat along, because I feel like flat is being short because of the secular uptrend on equities. I don't like being short equities at all because I cannot fight equity rallies. Uh, because it's since I know that eventually, like I always look at where the trains eventually will be, and that's kind of a weakness of my strategy that I'm not really good at shorting equities. Uh, while I had negative view on equities, it just means that I was closer to flat, right? No, but the thing, the stuff trends up, at, roughly speaking, the rate of growth of GDP. Yeah. So it it kind of biases you to being wrong when you short them. Me, I love shorting equities. It's it suits my personality, but it doesn't make any money. <laughs> well, it would have this year. It would have made it this year, and it would have been a good component of the portfolio that I didn't have. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. I am still skeptical on equities, and the reason is because my favorite indicator, interest rate momentum, is still negative in the sense that rates are still higher now than they were two years ago. And that's usually when I when I see ten year yield higher today than it was two years ago, uh, I am generally cautious on equities. When I see ten year yield lower than it was two years before that's when i go usually max long okay got it yeah when the 10-year yield is lower than it was two years ago which is it's nowhere close to be right now it might get there fairly soon in a few months i think it'll get there and it will be time to buy equities but i mean i'm not so like thinking but my bias is towards accumulating equities not towards like whatever they're like very deep if there's something you really want to own, something you specific you want to have, something that fits your macro views, I think it's time to start accumulating, but not yet time to be fully on. Right, that all makes perfect sense. Roughly speaking, like you, what you describe with your those indicators seems to me an index of the extent to which monetary policy is accommodative or stimulative versus contractionary or tightening. So, yeah, you you prefer to buy equities when the Fed wants wants you to buy equities. Exactly. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. Alex, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your views. It's fascinating for me. I hope other people liked it too. And thank you very much for having over. It was fun by the way. I did it it was fun. <laughs> Without me even giving you that stupid uh, Russian <laughs> comment that I usually make. It's all right. I think without it. Спасибо большое. So we've had a lot of questions about what the hell I'm talking about when I use the phrase meta rule. And it's a great question. In the discussion, 
I, because I'm not a very serious person, use the analogy to Whitney Houston's, how will I know if he really loves me? Because for me, that's a meta rule. Whitney's asking, okay, there's a whole series of signals which might indicate love, but which one should I use? And it's the same with trading. We have all sorts of heuristics which govern uh, whether or not we should be long or short, but when to use them and why. How do you know which one's relevant, which one's important, when are things superseded? And that's what Alex and I were talking about. And I think Alex is probably one of the best in the business at thinking through how he trades and what matters for his trading. And for me, the bigger question is always not, can you tell me what I should do this week? But can you tell me how to be a better trader? So that's why I wanted to talk to Alex about meta rules. And that's why I think it's important for everybody. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.